Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Dr. Karen Cam Radio Show. The intention of this show is to empower and inspire you to manifest the life of your dreams, whether it's radiant health, prosperity, loving relationships, or simply peace of mind. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm your host, Dr. Karen Kant, author of the number one bestseller, Guide to Healing Chronic Pain, A Holistic Approach. And if you don't have a copy of my book, you can get the first six chapters as a free download at www.karencan.com. You'll also receive my very popular formula for energy clearing and protection spray, which I have a lot of great testimonials about and how it helps people be uh, a lot more peaceful, clear the space, reduce arguments. It's actually really cool. So I hope you have that. And if you don't, definitely get your copy of that. You can download to your computer and charge your water every day. And I also have six of my Fast Track Your Healing programs absolutely free. And um, before I go, I just want to remind you that May 2nd is uh, my From Heartache to Joy interview at 11 a.m., and it's advanced healing for earth angels, star seeds, sensitives like empaths, walk-ins, hybrids. I know that's pretty woo-woo stuff, maybe especially for our guests today, but <laughs> I'm going to tell you guys anyway. So keep that open. I'm so excited to uh, launch the new program uh, on advanced healing for you guys So before I introduce the guest today, I want to share with you exactly why I asked Dr. John Juillard to be here today. Now, you're probably thinking, oh my gosh, have you gone off the deep end? You're asking us to read this book, Eat Wheat, Dr. Karen. Well, you just said in your best-selling book, Guide to Healing Chronic Pain, that we should avoid eating wheat if we have pain. So I'll tell you why I wanted to have Dr. Juillard on the show today. So I recently did a particular diet. It's called the fast metabolism diet. Now, I didn't lose a lot of weight with it. Actually, I hardly lost any. But um, but what was really neat about this diet was that it reintroduces uh, wheat, sprouted wheat, like a good so-called healthy form of wheat, and that you do a couple of days of wheat, uh, a week and other things that I had not been eating because I was mostly on the Paleolithic diet. So I wasn't eating legumes, uh, you know, chickpeas. So I got to tell you, once I reintroduced it, the oatmeal, the wheat, the legumes, I thought, oh, I'm really enjoying this. <laughs> so I, you know me, I connect the source, right? And I go, okay, so what's up with this, right? And um, I realized the message was, you know what, just because our Paleolithic ancestors may or may not have eaten, you know, that much grains or wheat or whatever it is that you believed or you read, that why can't we evolve, right? Why can't we evolve to eat things that we enjoy? Now, I'm not talking about crappy food. I'm not talking about toxin-laden, uh, glyphosate-laden wheat. And I'm not talking about, you know, the 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 the, the donut at the donut shop or the croissant at your local you know grocery store uh, but wouldn't it be cool if whatever we decide to make as a beautiful bountiful food that we can eat it and we can enjoy it and here comes along dr Gerard's book eat wheat and i thought ah this is really cool this is perfect timing and when dr Gerard talks about the brain lymphatics now i know those of you on my light warrior facebook group are like your ears are perked because 
we talked about brain lymphatics being backed up. And he talks about this in his book. So you got to get the book to read about this. And this is one of the major reasons I asked Dr. Dwyer to be on the line and on the show today so we can talk about this interesting phenomenon, which honestly, even though I went through medical school, <laughs> did not hear about brain lymphatics at all. Uh, I mean, that is so recent for me. But the minute I heard about it, I was like, oh, my gosh, I can muscle test this. I can check this. And sure enough, it was backed up. I used to get headaches whenever we would have an Ascension event. Now that I can clear my brain lymphatics, no headaches, at least, I mean, not from that anyway. It's awesome. And the whole tummy thing, we're going to talk to Dr. Gerard about how the lymphatics in the gut can affect the brain. This is so cool. And before I introduce it, I want to tell you a little bit more about Dr. Gerard. And probably, I don't know, I might get in trouble for saying his name the French way. <laughs> I don't know what he's actually, you know, because he doesn't really have a French accent. But, um. So Dr. Gerard actually is the former director of player development and nutrition expert for the New York Jersey Mets NBA team. He's also the best-selling author of seven health books, including his newest Eat Weed, of course, and has been a repeat guest on the Dr. Oz Show and featured in USA Today. You know, I thought it would be really cool to be on the Dr. Oz Show, and now I think I'm way too woo-woo for Dr. Oz, so forget that idea. But actually, he's been in... Um, Dr. Duard has been a uh, feature on USA Today, LA Times, and dozens of other national publications. He's been in practice for over 30 years in his Ayurvedic practice. He's seen 100,000 patients. Uh, he's the director of Life Spa, which is in Boulder, Colorado. And he's the creator of LifeSpa.com, the leading Ayurvedic health and wellness resource, resource on the web. So, Dr. Duard, thank you so much for spending your time with us today. I know you have patients to see, so we are so honored you're with us. No, it's so good to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, great. Well, before we begin on kind of the Eat Wheat and why you wrote the book, why don't you share a little bit about your background? First of all, how did you get into medicine in the first place, Ayurveda? Like, did you have a personal experience in childhood that, you know, got you into this line of work? Well, I, I give credit to my mother, who was just a health nut when we grew up. And, you know, I started doing fastings, and I was a big fan of Paul Bragg and Jack Elaine and, and mm. all these, and, and Bernard Jensen, all these really sort of old-time health experts. And I just got really into health and actually ended up going to stunt school in California, and I was getting beat up, and I started seeing a chiropractor <laughs> and started doing cleanses and and I just got into the whole health thing, and my mother was like, what are you going to do with your life and jump off buildings? And I was like, and she just sort of manipulated me to, you know, get an education. And, and, uh, and, um, and then in 1986, I went to India for a two-week vacation and ended up getting invited to stay there and learn their traditional system of medicine. And I ended up staying there a year and a half, and I met Deepak Chopra there, came back and ran his Ayurvedic Center wow. for eight years, and and now what I do is I take the ancient principles of medicine from around the world and I try to prove it with modern science and bring, you know, the science to the ancient wisdom. Because in my mind, I figure if something's been used for a thousand years and we have science to back it up, I think we should at least look at that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point because, you know, being a medical doctor, I'm left brain trained, obviously, and yet I do all this right brain kind of spiritual energy healing, you know, stuff that may or may not be provable, at least with today's instruments. But it's so cool. I like that idea. It's like, hey, there is a lot of ancient wisdom. Why not use, you know, the science today to see, you know, what's up and whether this stuff is really true. Um, so thank you for spending your time and energies helping those of us with the left brain, you know, <laughs> to, to, uh, to understand. But, you know, there's, there's, 
There's some really cool science that, you know, that one study was called uh, Gut Feelings and Intuitive Decision Making based on mm-hmm. the gut microbiome. So we now know that the microbiome is linked to intuitive decision making. So, you know, the idea that we're that far away from proving things that we can't necessarily understand, we're there. And there's amazing amounts of science that are buried in these journals that nobody's reading. And sort of what I love to do is kind of pull it out like the brain lymphatics. Ayurvedic medicine knew about these brain lymphatics thousands of years ago. They talked about exactly where they were. Then three years ago, they find them in the brain. And and it's like this big, huge discovery. Well, Ayurveda talked about not only what they did and how they worked and how they didn't function, but what how to treat them how to detoxify them because that's the direct link to brain fog anxiety depression autoimmune conditions fatigue inflammation and infection so it's just so cool to see i don't understand how the ancient people knew so much but trial and error over time passing it down from generation to generation which we sort of stopped doing in the early 1900s we said we're just going to start from scratch and do disease and forget about everything that was done you know in a holistic way way for thousands of years prior and I think we have lost some really amazing wisdom, and it's time to bring it back. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I don't know whether you've come across this in your practice, but uh, since I do a lot of woo-woo stuff, I can share with you that uh, we've been doing work on the microbiome on an energetic, spiritual level, and we've I, I've had many patients who their mood is literally like reflective of the mood, if you will, of the microbiome. So if the microbiome is unhappy, uh, or even if the, the fungal infection that we're working on energetically is, you know, getting killed and getting it more to balance, they will actually manifest actual mood issues that are going on in the microbiome that is not actually even theirs. Like we have, like, what, seven or eight pounds of these guys in our bodies? Why mm-hmm. wouldn't we have them? <laughs> Yeah, no, it's true. And there was one study showed that that the, the, they take young kids, toddlers, and they can measure their microbiome and predict whether the kid's going to be a mathematician or a scientist or an mm-hmm. artist or an author. So, so it's not it's mood, it's propensities. It's really such an amazing time to be as you as you know to be in the medical field and and really kind of uh, you know just experiencing the research that's being done and then trying to understand it and put it together. And that's why I love the idea of taking these ancient principles because what modern science keeps doing again and again and again is proving what they seem to know, maybe not with the scientific detail, but they definitely were on to things that worked and now we're proving why. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, maybe you can share with us a little bit more about, um, you know, uh, I know your book you know, is called Eat Wheat. And um, I'm sure, you know, and, and of course in your book you say, you know, we're not talking about, you know, any old wheat. Um, but it's really about repairing the gut and how that relates to so many different other areas in our bodies. So maybe you can expand on that for our listeners who might not be familiar with the whole gut lymph thing. <clears throat> Well, I think people, you know, should, I mean, I totally understand that when people eat wheat in general, they don't feel good. They gain weight, they bloat, they have brain fog. They have these things that the brain grain and the wheat belly books talk about. So it made sense that this must be the cause of my problem. The only problem with those books is that the the science that they used was that whole, that wheat had a high glycemic index, it acted like sugar, and therefore increased the risk of type 2 diabetes, and type 2 diabetes increases the risk of weight gain, obesity, and Alzheimer's disease. There's only one problem with that theory, is that whole wheat, real wheat, 
actually lowers the glycemic index in study after study, and it actually lowers the risk of type 2 diabetes in study after study. As a matter of fact, I, I challenge anybody to find any science to show that whole wheat actually didn't do anything but lower the risk of type 2 diabetes. In fact, a new study just came out last week from the American, the Harvard study it was published uh, through the uh, American Heart, Heart Association, and they found that, that and it was over two, almost 200,000 patients measured over 30 years and they measured over 16 different studies, and they found that that no, those three major different studies over 30 years, and they found that the people who ate the highest amount of gluten had the lowest risk of type 2 diabetes by 13%, and people who ate the least amount of gluten who were on gluten-free-ish diets actually had the highest amount of type 2 diabetes. So I think what we've done is we've sort of thrown the baby out with the bathwater saying that, okay, refined wheat processed wheat is, is actually a problem, and it does increase glycemic index, and therefore that must be, that, that we, so we blame all wheat, throw it in this category and say it causes type 2 diabetes, obesity, and Alzheimer's disease. But the reality is, is that whole wheat does just the opposite in study after study after study. So it's really and here's the crazy part, is that the $16 billion a year gluten-free industry is giving us highly processed, refined, gluten-free substitutes in replacement for whole wheat. And it's the highly processed foods that have caused this problem in the first place. And what they do, what these highly processed foods do, is they have cooked vegetable oils, omega-6 fatty acids, which, have, which in normal circumstances would go rancid very, very quickly. So to keep them from going bad, they bleach them and boil them and deodorize them and they stick them in your bread so your bread stays on the shelf for a month without getting hard. Remember the old-fashioned bread? You go to the bakery and by the end of the day it's hard as rock. Well, that's what bread typically mm -hmm. does when you do it the old-fashioned way. When you refine it and process it with these cooked vegetable oils, they never go bad. They extend the shelf life. And I challenge you to find packaged foods and whole foods and health food stores that don't have these cooked vegetable oils in them that are used as preservatives to extend the shelf life, but clearly not our life. And you're all, you were talking about the microbiome. And you think, okay, if the microbiome, which makes up 90% of the cells in our human body, they make things go bad. They gobble up foods that are, that are edible. But if the bread can stay on a counter for a month and not go bad, that means that the bugs that are everywhere have no interest in them because those bleached, deodorized, refined vegetables that are used to preserve them, they, they, the bugs will not go near them. So when you put them in your mouth, they are completely indigestible to us, and they're linked directly to gallbladder disease. And the number one elective abdominal surgery today in America is the removal of your gallbladder. And the gallbladder is the kingpin of the digestive process. Gallbladder is bio, the gallbladder holds bile, and bile is like a Pac-Man gobbling up toxins and chemicals and parasites and preservatives and pesticides. And it gobbles up all this stuff, but it also buffers all the acid from your stomach. So the bile is going to help you digest the fats and deliver energy. It's going to help neutralize the acid from your stomach. So the stomach is willing to make a ton of acid, which it needs to break down the gluten and the casein and the hard-to-digest proteins. And that's why so many people are having trouble, not only with just wheat and dairy, but nuts and seeds and legumes and grains. And we're slowly taking more and more, and food, more, and more foods out of our diet because we don't feel good digesting them. 
And that's a problem because our digestive strength is linked to our immune system and our ability to detoxify. And that's why I wrote the book Eat Wheat, was to take people, you know, teach them how to navigate around the processed foods, but more importantly, how to troubleshoot their digestive systems and reboot with whole foods and herbs, how to reboot digestive strength so we can have a good digestive system, maybe break some bread again, but even more importantly, have a powerful immune system and a powerful detoxification system. Because just taking wheat out of your diet is a false sense of security. If you I feel better. But my patients 30 years ago felt better when I took them out of, off of wheat. And then six months they come back and the problem, they come back and my problems, I got better, but now the problems are back. And then we take them off of nuts and seeds and, and, uh, and legumes and soy and they feel better and the problems come back. And what we've done for the last 30 years is we've kept kicking the real problem down the road while we continue to eat more and more of these processed foods that are insidiously in everything that we eat. And now we're stuck with a digestive system that can't digest much of anything, and people are continuing taking more and more foods out of their diet, which is a dangerous road to hoe. Mm-hmm. I have a couple of friends with so many food allergies. Now, of course, they're not my patients, so I don't want to say anything. <laughs> they didn't ask me. Uh, but they, they literally have... Like on, I can say less than uh, ten fingers, you know. Yeah, I mean, of, of things that they can eat, and I'm thinking, what a life! That is awful, you know, because there's just been more and more and more allergies because they never really addressed the underlying issues. It's so true, and you know, here and the the problem is that's growing. Like here, this big study just came out that said people who actually eat less gluten, who are on a gluten-free diet, have an increased risk of type two diabetes, which is linked to obesity, is linked to depression, is linked to Alzheimer's. So a low gluten diet is now showing out to be a real problem if you're a healthy person. And in other studies, I wrote an article called "The Dangers of a Gluten-Free Diet," and this is sort of scary, but people need to know. Then when they gave people a gluten-free diet and they compared to people who ate wheat, the people on the gluten-free diet had four times as much mercury in their blood and arsenic in their blood than people who actually ate wheat. They had less good bugs and more bad bugs than people who ate wheat in, another, in one other study. And in another study, they found that people who, had, who were on a gluten-free diet had significantly less killer T cells, a measure for immunity, than people who ate wheat. And this is sort of something called the hygiene hypothesis, which means that when you take foods that are hard to digest, they stimulate an immune response, and that gears up the, the gut immunity, which is where 80% of our immune system is. And one example of that that's really obvious is the Amish kids have the lowest rates of asthma on the planet, and they measured the dust that these kids breathe when they have cows as pets, and they run barefoot through the barns, and they measured the dust these kids breathe all day, and they found that the dust had irritants in it that triggered an immune response in their respiratory tract that triggered an immune response. And now they're now realizing that these hard-to-digest foods, the anti-nutrients, the phytic acids and things like that that are on nuts and seeds and grains and legumes and wheat and beans are so important for us. And, you know, when you say we didn't have the, the genetics that we could evolve to eat wheat. At the University of Utah, they found, that, they found evidence of gluten from wheat and barley in the teeth of ancient humans three and a half million years ago. And in some uh, ancient humans, they were eating 35 to 45% of their diet as grain, which makes sense because you could actually gather enough wheat berries in the fall in just two hours to feed you for the entire day. You know, three and a half million years ago, we didn't know how to hunt. That was a heck of a lot easier digging up roots or trying to chase down a woolly mammoth or some lion or tiger or something. And so we can just sit in the grass and eat wheat berries. That's what they did. 
And so we have millions of years of genetics to digest. We, we, have, we have microbes in our mouth and our stomach, small and large intestine, that are specifically engineered to make enzymes to help us digest specifically the prolamine epitopes or the hard-to-digest components of wheat. So the idea that we don't have the genetics to eat wheat is just sort of interesting. And the idea that ancient wheat is different than modern wheat is also really a flawed interpretation of the science. And I've written about this in my wheat book. I have over 600 scientific references. And in one study, it was a 19-year study at the University of Saskatchewan in Canada. And they measured ancient strains and modern strains of wheat from ancient wheats from the 1800s. And there was no genetic differences between the two. So there's a lot of you know, a lot of misinterpretation of the science to make the case that, to, to prove that when people eat wheat, they feel bad. And that's really, I get that. They really do feel bad when they eat wheat. But to say that wheat is the cause versus the processed version of the wheat in a broken down digestive system, that's where I think we have to draw the line and say, hey guys, just taking wheat out of your diet is not going to solve your real problem. As a matter of fact, it's a false sense of security and we need to fix the real problem and that's a reboot of your digestion and, and demand whole food and get off this, these processed foods that can sit on the shelf for months and months and months and then we eat them after they've been on the shelf for months, two months, six months, a year even. It's sort of crazy when you think about it. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I, I questioned about the um, the studies you mentioned earlier that, uh, you know, it seemed like the people that ate a gluten-free diet were doing worse than many of these parameters. Um, for those types of, you know, um, observational studies, is it possible that the group that decided they needed to go gluten-free were already sick to begin with, and therefore that's why they had all these things wrong with them versus, you know, a cause so because they were gluten-free wasn't necessarily a cause of them being ill, but possibly they were already ill. That's why they went gluten-free, and that's why all their well, you know, results were so bad. Yeah, no, it's a great question. And looking at the details of the study, like the genetic studies, really important to do that because those numbers add up. But in the in the uh, in the uh, the uh, gluten the, the study that showed that people with a higher amount of gluten uh, had less type two diabetes, those those were all healthy adults that they were measuring. Uh, so it wasn't anybody ah. who had problems who did that. In the in the mercury study, it was really interesting. They took one group that was a, a celiac group that had been on a gluten-free diet. Another group was a celiac group that had not started the, the gluten-free diet yet. Another group was just some, a group that was not celiac that was eating wheat. And the group that was eating wheat and the group that had, was celiac but had not started the gluten-free diet yet um, had four times less mercury in their blood than the group that was celiac that actually was on the gluten-free diet. And the other two studies, the one with the, when were the, where the wheat eaters had more good bugs and less bad bugs, and in the other study, they had more um, uh, killer T cells who, when they ate wheat. Those were with healthy people. They were on. They were on. a gluten-free diet for like uh, I think it was uh, like one month in one of those studies and ten days in another, and all that you can find on my website. But but clearly they were just healthy people. So when you look at that, you're going, golly, is there? You know, and it does sort of make sense when you think about, you know, people. Just like you said with your friend. 
how many people are just finding themselves going down the road of taking more and more food out of their diet because they just can't digest anything? And we really look at this idea that these harder to digest foods, for example, tomatoes were poisonous, you know, in the 1800s. Potatoes were poisonous. We have been eating poisonous foods for millions and millions of years. We have over 300 and counting taste buds for bitter, and bitter can either kill you or it can cure you, and that taste can. So we have been experimenting with bitter taste, trying to figure out what's going to kill us and curious for all this time and as a result of a combination of hybridization of every food that we eat today has been hybridized so has wheat uh, and we hybridize some of these poisonous effects out of these foods but those small amounts of poisonous or toxic constituents have been shown like phytic acids for example people say oh phytic acids are terrible in wheat and they cause all these problems well, they say it helps block, it blocks the absorption of iron and calcium. Well, in studies that show that people actually eat a high-grain diet who have lots of phytic acid, they have actually 43% more iron in their blood and no indication of osteoporosis. And then we find out that the phytic acids actually reduce the risk of colon cancer in a handful of studies. So these harder-to-digest constituents that, that are on the wheat and the, dairy, and, the, and the dairy, the casein, or the, or the nuts and the seeds, or the legumes, the beans, the grains, all of these are, are, are so complex, and we've been eating them for so many millions of years. We've, we've evolved, like you said, to really take advantage of that. Now, when you break down the digestive system, then those hard-to-digest foods, and here's where the lymph comes in, those hard-to-digest foods are not broken down because the stomach won't produce the acid it needs to break them down unless it has adequate bile flow. And if the liver is congested, the gallbladder is congested, the bile is too thick, you're not going to make the acid because your stomach can't neutralize it. And with no acid, those proteins and environmental pollutants like fats, the mercury from the organic, uh, from the uh, coal mine plumes that are on all the organic vegetables, all that mercury and all those hard-to-digest proteins will go undigested into your small intestine. Because they're not broken down completely with a really strong digestive fire in your stomach, they're too big to get into the bloodstream. And where do they go? They get uptaken into the collecting ducts of your lymphatic system. And when your lymphatic system gets congested around your belly, then all those fats that are trying to be delivered as energy into every cell of your body through your lymphatic system, when that road is blocked by a lot of undigested proteins or undigested toxins, environmental pollutants, then the fats, the triglyceride fats that are being delivered to every cell of your body via your lymphatic system to make sure you have energy, that will just get stored into the fat around your belly because that's where it goes when the road is blocked and it waits for the road to open and then we just store that fat for a rainy day, for energy for a rainy day. When the belly lymph, the lymph around your belly and intestinal tract gets congested, slowly but surely all the lymphs get congested the skin-associated lymph gets congested, so people get hives and eczema and rashes when they eat more of these hard-to-digest proteins like wheat. And then we talked about the brain lymphs, which drain three pounds of toxic chemicals and plaque out of your brain every single year. And if you have congested lymph around your belly and your gut, then the brain lymphs can't drain while you sleep at night, and you end up getting you know, very vulnerable to brain fog, cognitive decline, anxiety, depression, autoimmunity, infection, and inflammation. And that's the science now that they've proven that that's directly linked to these brain drain effects, not grain brain effects, not a grain brain effect. It's a brain drain effect caused by weak digestion, 
not letting the proteins be broken down completely. They go undigested into your small intestine, too big to get into your blood, to get into your lymph, congest your lymph, and eventually the brain lymphs can't drain, and then you have all these problems. We blame it on the wheat. Well, it's not the wheat. It's a whole host of undigested you know, uh, toxins and chemicals. I mean, there's 4 billion pounds of toxic chemicals dumped in the American environment every year. For us to get rid of those, when we're exposed to them, we have to have a good digestive system and a robust production of bile. And if we don't have that, which most people don't because they don't do well with fatty foods, they eat less fatty foods, and, of course, the fats we do eat are all these processed omega-6s, which actually lower cholesterol but actually increased the risk of heart disease. And that was a real, uh, a real mistake when they gave us in replacement for a low cholesterol okay. diet, these omega-6 fatty acids, which are highly refined. That was the beginning of the diabetic, obesity, and depression era. And now the gluten-free era because people can't digest anything. And you can link all of this whole mess back to when they told us cholesterol caused heart disease, which you know it didn't, and they gave us those processed vegetable oils and replacement, which were preservatives that were completely indigestible by our microbes and us, and we're paying the price now. And we're blaming wheat, which is really, really sad because wheat didn't do anything wrong except get highly processed. <laughs> Wheat's like the scapegoat for the industrial process, trying to get rid of these. What do we do with this extra stuff? I don't know. I don't know. Let's just sell it. You know, let's just sell this, <laughs> sell this oil. We can't dump it because we'll get fined for dumping it somewhere. So we'll just sell it. Um, uh, we have some great questions here on the uh, on the chat. Um, Anna says okay. uh, that she grew up. Uh, she is celiac, so she's wondering whether this, uh, you know, this is. Um, you know, information would be relevant for her. She said she grew up eating whole grains, sprouted wheat, never, ever ate white processed wheat. She didn't indulge in gluten-free products. She has lots of huge challenges with her gallbladder early on, too, which they removed 20 years ago uh, when she had chronic pain. Uh, but she had no polyps, um, no stones, and she really believes, like what you're saying, the lymphatic congestion is what's happening. So she's trying betaine hydrochloride to help increase yeah. the stomach acid, but it burns her. So she's wondering, what do you suggest that, you know, somebody with celiac do if they haven't been able to eat wheat? Well, it's such a great question. First of all, 1% to to 1 of the population is celiac, and they shouldn't eat wheat, maybe 3% if you take all the undiagnosed people. So that percentage is, is you know, shouldn't be eating wheat. But we're talking more than 40 million Americans today eating, you know, not going on a gluten-free diet um, because they – think it might be healthy, or they don't feel good when they digest it. I totally get that. But so in her case, she had gallbladder issues years ago. The, the gallbladder was taken out. The bile and the gallbladder helps to neutralize the acid. So you take the gallbladder out, you feel a little better, um, but you didn't really address the reason why the gallbladder got congested in the first place. You just took it out. Right? So by taking it out, you don't solve anybody's problems. You just take the gallbladder out. Now, the congestion in the gallbladder and the bile ducts are a little bit better, but the reason why the gallbladder got congested has not been addressed at all. And the bile now has to be made on demand by your liver. And if the liver is congested for the same reason the gallbladder got congested, then the bile is probably not being made on demand as efficiently as it could. Therefore, not as great a buffer for the acid that you need to digest, hard-to-digest foods like wheat and dairy, so they are going to go undigested, rip your guts to shreds, and cause you over time an autoimmune condition, particularly autoimmunity triggers when the lymph around the gut gets congested because that's where the immune system is. And the immune system, when it gets overwhelmed with these 
toxins and undigested proteins and environmental pollutants and pesticides overwhelm the lymph around the, around the gut and the intestinal tract, that's when you get an overzealous immune response, which is an autoimmune condition. But now, you take hydrochloric acid, which is giving your body the acid your stomach needs, and your stomach's probably going to say, somebody's going to say, who is pouring acid into the stomach? <laughs> I stopped producing the acid 20 years ago because they didn't have enough bile to buffer it. So I stopped producing the acid. I didn't burn a hole through my intestines and kill myself. So I stopped producing acid for a reason. Now, who's turning all this acid on? Where is this acid coming from? So before you just turn on the acid, you've got to make sure you produce adequate bile. So what I would tell her to do is, and I, I give you all kinds of foods that are called cologogs. Cologogs are things that increase bile flow, thin bile flow. There's even, I just finished writing a, an e-book called the Safe Liver Cleansing e-book, which is free for anybody to learn how to really reboot their digestive system and get their bile flowing again. Uh, in my Eat Wheat book, I take you step by step by step through a troubleshooting process with whole foods and herbs to reboot bile flow and increase your, your production and thin your bile. Things like beets and artichokes and turmeric. Turmeric, for example, increases the contraction of your gallbladder by 50%. Fenugreek seeds, fenugreek seed tea, increases the contraction of your gallbladder by 75%. So there's so many natural things that will congest, that will contract your gallbladder, or in your in her case, thin the bile and help her liver make bile better in a more, more powerful way. And, and, you know, no worries. Just because you don't have a gallbladder, that is not a deal breaker. You can still do this. But like I said, the reason why the gallbladder was taken out has never been addressed. And we have to troubleshoot. Is there constipation issues? Is there issues? Because the constipation, the toxins from the gut, as you know, through the enteric cycle goes back to the liver, congest your liver, liver gets thick and viscous and congested, the bile gets congested. Now we have real problems in the liver and the gallbladder, and then they take out them in record numbers. And, and the thing that makes that so, so congested is the undigested, bleached, theodorized, boiled, refined vegetable oils that are in just about everything that are used as preservatives and that just has to stop so when you eat when you look at the pat when you look at your foods absolutely never again do you buy a food that has a cooked or a boiled or a, or a cooked or a baked uh, vegetable oil even if it's organic expeller pressed canola oil don't use it it's a preservative you don't want to do that and then when you when you eventually start putting bread back into your diet the ingredients of your bread should be or, you know organic whole wheat salt water and an organic starter and that's it and really good like organic like fermented bread from beginning to end can take up to 3 days to finish and completely bake and make a loaf of bread where the grocery store bread the organic whole wheat loaf grocery store bread can take two hours from beginning to end to bake. So that's just not what we really should be putting in our, in our mouth and our body because we can't digest it. And over time, it, it will have an impact. But, you know, I, I would tell her, don't worry about the fact you don't have a gallbladder. You know, so many of my patients don't have gallbladders, and we get them back eating wheat again and get them digesting fats again and, because they can make that bile on demand if the liver's happy. Mm, yeah, that's great. I wrote some of this down in the chat for the folks in the chat, so uh, some of the foods that you can find in the book. Um, and I also asked, she, she joked and she said, uh, yeah, she, he's right, after 30 days after my uh, gallbladder was removed, I felt like a million dollars, then back to the same issues, including the pain. 
Uh, and then she said, yeah, I need a roto-rooter. Uh, but then she says, what but, about the you know, lectins I, from wheat and the nightshades? What about the what? Let the uh, lectins from wheat and nightshades getting into the bloodstream, crossing the blood-brain barrier, also getting into joints. I guess you have to have a healthy digestive system so you don't get a permeable intestine. That was her other question. And there are really good studies that show, and this is where people don't even believe this when I find these studies that show that whole wheat versus refined wheat actually seals up the intestinal permeability, the leaky gut syndrome. It reduced the irritable bowel syndrome pain in, in two or three studies when you ate whole wheat versus refined wheat. So whole wheat's been shown to be a natural prebiotic and probiotic because it's a powerful agent for building a good, healthy microbiome. So, but you're absolutely right. If you have, let's say you have years and years of constipation, well, that means the, you know, the, you're not getting the waste out very well. The first thing that happens is that constipation congests the lymph on the outside out of your gut. And you start getting lymphy things like uh, tiredness and lethar- lethargy and skin rashes and eczema. And when you menstruate, your breasts become tender or swollen or you break out or hold on to a bunch of water. That's due to a, a lymphatic detox that takes place prior to menstruation. So premenstrual detoxification to help you pre-detox through your lymphatic vessels. I wrote an article on my website at lifespot.com called It Might Not Be Hormonal because so many women have premenstrual lymphy bloating, breakout, breast swelling, centeredness, sore, achiness, tiredness, moodiness, and it turns out to be, in many cases, lymphatic congestion. You go in there and decongest your lymphatic system. We have you know, herbs like mangista and red root and, and berries and cherries and all these natural lymphatic movers, and you start taking those. In so many of my, my patients' cases, they were so, so significantly improved. We didn't give them anything related to their hormones. All we did was decongest your limbs and their reproductive problems got better. People get joint pain, achiness, swelling around their ankles and toenail funguses and rings getting tight in their fingers and hives and brain fog. These are all lymphatic congestive issues. Headaches, migraines are lymphatic congestive issues. So, when you, when, so that's the first thing that happens. And when that lymph gets congested, the toxins will default back to your liver and down the road. Now your liver gets congested and your bile gets thick and your bile makes you poop. No bile, no poop. More constipation. No bile, no emulsifying of the good fats to deliver energy and mood stability and no getting rid of the bad fats. And then... Bile also buffers the acid in your stomach, so no bile, no stomach acid, no stomach acid. You're not going to digest wheat, I can tell you that. It's hard to digest protein, and other grains will, will follow suit down the road, and then you have all these digestive problems. So we have to heal the intestinal skin, clean out the lymphatic system, decongest your liver and gallbladder, and then eventually turn on your stomach fire. And it's easy. I mean, turning on your stomach fire is easy. There's five spices that, were, that they used for thousands of years to make that happen, and there's incredible science to back up these five spices. And when you use them all together, they have this, like, synergistic effect, and they are called ginger, cumin, coriander, fennel, and cardamom. So it's ginger, cumin, coriander, fennel, and cardamom. You can cook with them, sprinkle them on your food. We have a product called Gentle Digest, which has all those in them. And individually, they have great effect to boost digestive strength. But when you take all of them together, what they do is they actually increase the ability for your stomach to make its own bile, its own duodenal and pancreatic enzymes, its own stomach acid. So it helps the body reboot function so you don't become dependent on a pillar of powder down the road. And many of us who take digestive enzymes and HCL and bile salts, 
We're just doing the job for the body, never getting the body back to its self-sufficient state. And that's the goal, is we can all. Just because you're getting older does not mean you'd have to stop digesting. I'm 60 now, and I feel like I'm digesting better than I've ever digested before. So, it, you know, this idea that you can't digest when you get older is not true. There's centenarians who lived over 100 years old, and they're digesting great. You know, they don't take any pills or powders. We can do it, but we have to look at the logic behind it and the science. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. And uh, it's funny because uh, Anna and I here on the chat, she, she's like, oh, my gosh, I'm taking notes. This is what I put on my dinner last night except for the cumin. And that, that's oh, pretty nice, much nice. like my kitchen has all that, you know, has all that uh, stuff. And I love, you know, those those flavors. So that's fantastic. And I've always thought it was kind of weird to, like, give people – you know, like digestive enzymes or, you know, pancreatic or ox bile, I'm thinking, gee, how am I going to get their body to do it on their own? <laughs> so you pretty much, you know, answered my question. That is really cool. You know, what's interesting and, is that when, you, when people mm-hmm. take digestive enzymes, it's really, if you take a digestive enzyme and you feel better, here's what's happening. People should know this. The pancreatic duct that delivers digestive enzymes into your small intestine, before it goes into your small intestine, it connects up and hooks up with your bile duct. So the bile tube for your gallbladder and your bile connects with your pancreatic duct, and then they go in together. So if the bile is thick and viscous from the processed foods we mentioned, the pancreatic enzymes can't get there either. So then you take a digestive enzyme, which is pancreatic enzymes, and you feel better. Well, that just tells me that, you know, yeah, your pancreatic duct is blocked and your bile ducts are blocked. So why don't we rotor-rooter out those tubes and get them working again? It's not that difficult to do. And the interesting thing, if you don't do that, then the pancreatic enzymes that are trying to get into your small intestine will back up into the pancreas and start digesting your pancreas. And that's diabetic risk and pancreatitic risk. And the fats that are trying to get into, your, get into the small intestine via the bile ducts will back up into your liver, causing fatty liver. And these are two really common conditions today because of this really undiagnosed and untreated condition called increased bile viscosity or, and, or bile sludge which actually is a medical term, a bile sludge. It's a real thing, but a lot of times it doesn't show up on tests. People, they don't really know what to do, and so they just sort of take out your gallbladder, which instead of cleaning out the sludge, which is a, you know, a, a lot easier to clean out the sludge than having to take your whole gallbladder out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that is really cool. I did not know about the uh, the back of the pancreatic enzymes causing or potentially causing pancreatitis or diabetes. That's kind of scary actually that's the number one reason for pancreatitis is the backflow of congested pancreatic ducts and the enzymes go back into your pancreas and digest your pancreas basically and people don't know it but 91 percent of the people the pancreatic duct conjuncts combines with the bile duct and they go in together so in 91 percent of the people if you have thick viscous bile from the processed foods we've all been eating there's a good chance you're getting backflow into your pancreas which is dangerous Mm. Well, I got to yeah. tell you, that was not on my surgical exam. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. That answer was not on the surgical exam. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's great to, to learn all this new stuff. I really, now, how do you find time to, uh, to, to be a clinician and to do this research? I, I just do not have that, you know, I just don't put that time into reading all these studies, and, you know, I'm just so busy. How do you do it personally? Well, I think, I, you know, I like... 
I definitely, I mean, I still see patients like three, four half days a week. So it's, you know, it's not a ton like I used to. So the other half of the day I write and I research and I write. And I'm sort of just, I think I found what I want to do when I grow up, which is to kind of, you know, prove ancient <laughs> principles and with modern science. And I get so excited about it when I just think, my gosh, we really, the research is really, there's volumes of research that's proving all this amazing natural health, these natural health concepts but none of it reaches medical practice. So I try to sort of accelerate the process by connecting it with time-tested practices. Mm. Oh, yeah, that's great. That's fantastic. And for those of you on the chat, I'm just linking up that article that uh, uh, Dr. Duar was telling us about, uh, about the uh, it might not be your hormones. So if you're on the chat, you can check that out. We've got a bunch of people on the chat. Um, and we do have about eight minutes left here. If you want to ask Dr. Gerard your own question, either about yourself or issues a uh, loved one, the number to call in is 818-514-1190. Hit one, so I know your hand is up. Again, 818-514-1190, and then just hit one. And also you can uh, uh, write in the chat as well. I know Anna's been really active on the chat here because of our own personal issues, but you can also ask your question here as well. Um, Oh, yeah, yeah, Anna actually recently had a, a leg injury, so she ended up on a bunch of uh, antibiotics because uh, it was a pretty bad uh, leg wound. So the big belly is uh, happening to her. Do you have advice in your book about how to, uh, you know, kind of re-resurrect the microbiome after having to take antibiotics if it was life-threatening or having to take that for infections? Yeah, absolutely. You know, in the book, I take you step by step of because clearly the quality of the intestinal skin is so critically important. And there's one study show that there's three pieces of the aging process, and one of them is the quality of the intestinal skin, the quality of the lymphatic drainage that drains the intestinal skin, and of course the health and integrity of the microbes that live on the intestinal skin who depend on the lymph drainage off the intestinal skin. So I spend a lot of time in the book, you know, you know, taking you step by step through, okay, here are some things for repairing your intestinal skin. One of them is a combination of slippery elm and marshmallow root and licorice root tea. You take those herbs chopped about a tablespoon of each, soak it in two quarts of water overnight, boil it down to a half a quart, strain it through a metal strainer, and you take this thick, viscous, slimy prebiotic tea and take tablespoon dosages like a Pepto-Bismol commercial throughout the day, a little bit every <laughs> two hours, coating the whole intestinal tract with this prebiotic slime. And then you apply a natural colonizing probiotic, and also we, with a little, I, I use a little bit of Saccharomyces in mine, which kills off the bad bugs. So now you have this ability to repopulate with bugs that will become permanent residents. You don't become dependent on a probiotic for the rest of your life. And you knock out some of the bad bugs that are there, but you create and you but you create a healing environment for your intestinal skin. And that's a formula we have called the slippery elm tea uh slippery elm prebiotic formula. And then the uh the probiotic we use is called gut revival. And you guys can you can either get them from us or you can look at the ingredients and do it up yourself. But you know, this is something I use clinically to help reboot and repair people's intestinal skin. And all that's in the book Eat Weed as well. But yeah, it's so oh, critically important. Because you know, and taking antibiotics, I mean, yeah, we don't like to take them, but people who do it don't worry about it. It's okay. It's just like starting from scratch, because when you can take the antibiotics, you're killing all the bad guys too. So let's make this into lemonade, you know. Let's okay, they're all gone, the good guys, some guys, good guys, but a lot of the bad guys are gone. So now I can heal and repair, repopulate and start fresh with a brand new healthy microbiome. So let's not knock ourselves beat ourselves up for having to take an antibiotic. It happens to us, you know what I mean? 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, one one of the questions is uh, how will I know if my gut is healed so I could start gingerly introducing weed again? Uh, this is a non-celiac person. This is a great question. I do give you some questionnaires in the book to ask you those questions, but here are some basic ones. You should go to the bathroom every morning within the first hour, waking up a complete elimination, number one, or number two. Uh, and then the, the second <laughs> thing is when you, eat, when you eat greasy fried food or, or you challenge yourself, how do I feel I eat a little greasy fried food? If you get nauseous or bloating or gas, you can't eat that. Then your gallbladder is still congested. I don't suggest people eat greasy fried food, but you know when you think about historically, ancestrally, we were eating the brains of a woolly mammoth and the intestines of, a, of an elk or a buffalo all in one sitting. That's a crazy amount of fat that we had to, be, had, had to be able to handle. And if you can handle that much fat in one sitting or a good fatty meal in one sitting, then you have the bile flow to neutralize the, to neutralize the acid, buffer the acid, and digest those fats. That's a really good thing. And then, of course, you can't have any heartburn or indigestion or, or, you know, or bloating around your belly as well. So we have to you know, sort of make sure that there's no digestive stress. And I think the one study I, like I cited in my book is that 70 to 80% of the American population have some type of digestive distress. I mean, logically, we should fix that up, right? We shouldn't just like say that that's just the way it has to be. Those things are fixable. And of course, it has something to do with the kind of food we eat and how we digest it and all of that is something that we have control over. We can fix that digestive system. We can choose the right foods. Demand healthy whole foods, and that's, that's what we're not doing. We have a sixteen billion dollar a year industry giving us processed foods in replacement for whole wheat. That's what got us in this mess in the first place. It's sort of it's criminal what they're doing. You know, it's that we're, we're that everybody's thinking that gluten free foods are somehow healthy for us. They're simply not. I mean, logic will tell us that, but now we have the science to prove it. Right. Well, and definitely the whole food, real food is the way to go. We are so lucky here, Dr. John, here in the Adirondacks. We have a lot of farmers around us. We have a huge oh, nice. farmer's market. You know, even though we're a small town, I mean, we, we do get a lot of things, you know, fresh and we're, uh, you know, fresh eggs and all sorts of things. And that we're, we are so, so lucky. Uh, I used to go to Adirondacks that. as a kid. I, I used to go there all the time. Oh, yeah? Tupper Lake and, yeah, Lake Placid, yeah. Tupper Lake, all those areas. I love it up there. It's beautiful. Oh, that's great. Well, you already have a ton of fans now then. So that yeah, oh, God, I love it, love it. I'm a lot from Tupper Lake. And, yeah, I know. Yeah. So that is great. Uh, you know, this is, this is. I know we just have a few minutes left, but uh, my, I've definitely had, like many of my patients, similar issues, uh, a long saga of gastrointestinal issues. And it totally made sense to me after I understood more of this functional medicine stuff. Like I had been on oral contraceptive pills, a bunch of antibiotics, but not a bunch of drugs for asthma and you know, nasal stuff, and I thought, you know, I was just too busy to make all my own food, and so I'd go to the local whatever, Carl's Jr. in L.A. when I was working for UCLA, you know, or the local Thai restaurant and just get food, and I just really didn't think too much about it. I just thought I I always tell people, oh, I have an iron digestion, of course, until I ended up with fibromyalgia, leaky gut, you know, all this kind of stuff, and went, whoa, I feel like crap. Um, so it's been a, a long journey. Well, it's a lot shorter than most people, but, you know, a journey to recover all that. And um, interestingly, uh, even though I've done, you know, a lot of the, the food, you know, healing and stuff like that, I recently discovered that uh, being so empathetic or sensitive energetically is that my gut 
when I get constipated, that is my like kind of telltale sign that there's some energy that needs to process. <laughs> Either it's mine or Mother Earth or something like that. And if I figure out the right answer, then boom, I poop. You know, and it's so funny because, you know, I've gone through that whole, is there not enough minerals, is there not, you know, bile, is it not, you know, stomach acid, leaky gut, you know, healing. I'm, I'm bone brothed to the max here, uh, you know, healing the inside lining of, of the gut. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's interesting and fascinating that uh, the whole thing you talked about, the lymphatics of the gut, oh, my gosh, massive, massive poofiness uh, that I've suffered over the yeah. last, you know, few wow. years. Um, even even though I've so-called you know healed intestinal lining, but uh, some of that is empathetic um, lymphatic congestion. So you've given me so much more material now that I can do energetic healing around that I didn't know about. <laughs> so thank you. Well, you're very welcome. And you know, I think that people need to realize that we do process our stress through our intestinal skin. That's what makes up 95% of our our dopamine, our, our our neurotransmitters, and our dopamine and our serotonin. So you know. When you're a highly sensitive person where you have a lot of radar and you feel everything, which I think is your greatest asset, but it takes a while to learn how to live in a very stressful, insensitive world when you're a very highly sensitive person. But once you learn how to do that, that sensitivity that you can begin to really work on the level of the energetics is so critically important. But you know, but a lot of people who just get overly sensitive, their gut gets wonky, and they're getting intestinal, you know, they get lymphatic congestion, they swell and bloat, it backs up into their liver, and they have digestive problems. And then their ability to be aware and sensitive and highly tuned in becomes bogged down with all this undigested food, so they never really reach their potential. So, so for for those of you, you who are listening who are really highly sensitive, have, have that high level of awareness, but you're going to have a sensitive digestion as well, and that's why it's so critical critical to reboot digestive strength and get. That lymph system cleaned out, so people can really access their potential. Which I, I think, you know, being highly sensitive is such a great gift. But a lot of people feel feel like it's a curse, and it isn't. Mm-hmm. But when you're when you're bombarded with processed foods and therefore indigestion, it can feel like a curse. But it absolutely doesn't have to be. Oh, I'm so glad you said that. One last question: Somebody just typed in, "What about sushi, raw oysters? I love these. Is it okay to eat?" Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, you have to be careful, you know, where you're getting it from and the, the mercury content and things like that. But remember, we do have the ability to get rid of mercury in our blood. We have digestive enzymes and bile to do that. But if the liver and the gallbladder are congested, your ability to get rid of those heavy metals, which are fat-soluble, are going to be more difficult. So you have to always be thinking reboot digestive strength. The Atlantic is actually way more pure, like 20% more pure than the Pacific right now because of all the good things we did in America with coal, getting cleaner coal. So the Atlantic fish are about 20 percent less mercury in the last 10 years than than they did so there so that's where you want to get, get your fish is source it from the atlantic unfortunately pacific hasn't caught up yet because asia isn't doing a great job and those winds blow that way so it's kind of interesting research about you know you can get you know 20 percent difference than, than between, you know between the two kinds of fish so great place to think about getting norwegian salmon things like that would be a great strategy just to know that how, but you got to be careful how much of that okay? you eat well, Alaskan, you know, is is from the Pacific, and it, you know, generally it's good. But you know, you know, just you know, food for thought that the the Atlantic is actually a pure, a more pure ocean these days than the Pacific hmm. is. Yeah, interesting. Fascinating, fascinating. Yeah. Oh well, Dr. Gerard, thank you so much for your time, everyone. Thank you so much for listening in as well. The website to go to get uh, you can actually get uh, two free chapters of uh, Dr. Gerard's book, EatWheat.LifeSpa.com. 
uh, check that out, get a copy of his book. And again, uh, Dr. Duarte, thank you so much for your illuminating <laughs> interview today. It was wonderful. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. All right. My pleasure, too. All right. Bye, everyone. Until next time. <laughs>